Welcome to episode number five of Talking Higher Ed. I'm your host, John Neal, president of Gen Ed Consulting. Today's guest is Dr. Kenneth Riles, president of IDEA, a nonprofit organization based in Manhattan, Kansas, dedicated to improving student learning through analytics, resources, and advice. Talking Higher Ed is designed to feature the people who love sharing their personal career pathways and their professional insights regarding this broad field of higher education. With thanks to our producer and engineer, Grant Neal, we welcome your suggestions for future topics and guests. Please email those ideas to john at genedconsulting.com. That's J-O-H-N at J-E-N-E-D consulting.com. We hope you enjoy this episode. Ken, thanks for being with us. We're at the Council of Independent College Chief Academic Officer meeting, and uh, great to see you. We've, sure. we've been pals for Quite a number of years, yeah. so <laughs> so glad to have you here. Thanks, as, John. As I was mentioning to you, um, the Talking Higher Ed podcast, uh, the folks who listen to it really like hearing about career trajectory, okay. how you got started. So. Um, what was your background? How did you get started in higher ed? And then even now um, transitioning into IDEA? All right. So I'm a fairly traditional academic um, in my academic career, but I didn't get started in my academic career until pretty late. So I was kind of, I mean, I, I like to say, I used to say to my students when I was a professor that I'm the only PhD who was on academic probation his first two years of college. So, <laughs> so, I love that. Yeah, so I, I dropped out for a while and kind of found my head and found out what I wanted to do and then uh, went back to college. I think I was you know, 25, 26 or something like that. And, and kind of when I went back, I was really successful because I had motivation and purpose and wanted to be a uh, experimental psychologist. Wow. So um, I had a mentor in, uh, as an undergraduate, a guy named Mark Schaller, um, who kind of convinced me to, to be a social psychologist with an emphasis in cognition and did that and, you know, had a successful undergraduate career and then went to grad school in Indiana and uh, got my PhD in social psych. <clears throat> and that was, I got it in 1996. So, um, how, how old was that? I was 35, I guess, when I got it. So, you know, it took me a while to get my act together, right? Um, and then I, I had a traditional career. I became a professor, and then I was a program director. I was a department chair. I was a bigger department chair. And then I became a dean and vice president for academic affairs at a small college in the Midwest. So, Was most of your professorial work I mean once you left Indiana was most of your work in smaller colleges yeah so that's been my career is I, that's why I've always loved CIC just because it's it's focused on small colleges but I I mean I think I was an okay researcher but I I really like the teaching aspect of it and so I gravitated towards small colleges and um, so I was at um, three different small colleges in the Omaha area during my career, and I kind of moved up the chain, I guess, or sure. moved moved into the dark side at some <laughs> point, you know, and became an, an administrator. When, when did you think 
um, moving into administrative positions um, really was what you wanted to do. Because I, I don't know if this is true for you, but I talked to more more academics, not so much presidents, but provosts, deans, department chairs who say, well, they kind of talked me into it. It's almost <laughs> like they're trying to say, I didn't really want right. this job. You know, it was thrust I just, upon me. Yeah, and, and they're almost apologetic about right. it. Was that you or was it something you thought you might like to try and then once you did, that was a good direction? So I'll be, I'll be really transparent um, because why not, right, at this point in my life and <laughs> career? And, um, so I'm the, I thought, for better or worse... And I know there's a lot of people out there who would say who would disagree with this, but I thought um, that I could make a, a pretty good difference as an administrator, and that I could I had some things to contribute. And frankly, I didn't like uh, having people tell me what to do, or <laughs> especially if I thought it was wrong, you know. So I was, it was kind of that syndrome of like, well, I could do that better. <laughs> like, jeez, and you know, a lot of it was just the personality that I have that if you tell me you know go fly that plane I'd be like well how hard could it be let's get it up in the air and see what's what let's go so um, I've kind of got that that um, personality anyway and so uh, as I got more and more ability to influence the direction I liked it um, and having uh, multiple children doesn't hurt either you're like well I could use the extra money you know? so <laughs> So, uh, but most of it was my personality because mm -hmm. it, it was really nice to be a professor. I, we work hard as professors and there's a lot to do, uh, but there's less headaches. And I know a lot of professors would disagree with that, but uh, when the authority stops with you, it becomes a lot more sleepless nights and especially personnel issues, I yeah. think are like the worst thing in the world to deal, deal with. And I've always hated it. Yeah. And I think you've kind of lost your humanity if you ever get used to that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So those are, there's a lot of tough things about it, but I, it really was like a sense of bravado or, you yeah. know, like well, I can do this. It's interesting you would say that because um, one, one of the things I had a boss one time uh, early on in my higher ed, I'll call it administrative staff positions. I really... Technically, I wasn't an administrator yet, but I thought I was in my mind. And, and I had a boss say, you haven't really broken into administration until you're dealing with people. That is from an HR standpoint, right. hiring, firing, motivating, right. all of that. And, you know, it, and I asked him one time, so what percentage of your time do you spend on personnel? Because I was moving into administrative. And he said, oh... 60 percent of my time, and I was just aghast. Right. And about six months later, I went back to him and said, "You lied to me." I said, "I'd love if, if it was only fifty or sixty percent." He <laughs> right. said, "Well, right. if I, I thought if I told you the truth, you would never take the administrative <laughs> right. post, right?" It's so, five percent of the people and eighty percent of your time, or I, something like that. That's exactly know. right. Yeah. So after after the what we'll call a more traditional academic um, track then life um, sort of turns toward idea. So talk about that transition a little bit. How did that work? And, and also go ahead and talk some about idea. Yeah, I'll it explain does. it, what yeah. we do and why I was drawn to it. So, you know, at, at some point in your career, or every 
phase of your career, at least I always hit a point where I'm like, well, I'm ready to move on. Sometimes it's external, sometimes it's it's personal. Um, like for a long time, I just got used to the job. So it was like, okay, I can do this. It's relatively unchallenging and boring. What's the next thing I can do? Um, for the transition to idea, it was, it was a bit of both. So it was an internal, it was also some external forces at my previous institution that, you know, just uh, nothing horrendous, but just like time for me to move on, you know. And um, so I started thinking about other provost positions, other C, uh, CAO positions, and uh, maybe a small presidency because I... I tend to uh, people have told me that I tend to interview well and they were like you know you could probably secure a president spot so I kind of thought that's a good next step you know another provost position would be interesting but the same job you know so I thought maybe a president's position so I kind of got on a radar for both for a couple of headhunters and they were showing me around to different schools and things like that and one of them was this job at IDEA this president's uh, position and so I looked up IDEA, and, and what we do is we're a nonprofit research organization, and we look at um, issues in higher education, and we try to make them better by, by gathering um, what we call perception research around different issues. And then we try and improve the learning that goes on in a college environment through uh, data and through analyzing those data and providing the people who work in a college with information that they can make decisions on. So one of the biggest things that we do is a student ratings of instruction tool, so that end of course evaluation. Um, but we focus on what we consider very important things around that. So it's not a satisfaction tool. It's not a. It's not a, uh, a popularity survey. Uh, we look at teaching methods. We look at learning outcomes that the students feel like they've um, achieved, and we provide the faculty with data that. Um, arguably can help them get better in the classroom. So that's just one example of what we do. But um, So when I looked it up, you know, originally it was, it's still what I call the other side of the table. So it's still a business that relates to uh, higher education. <clears throat> and my initial reaction when I was asked to apply to this is, oh, no. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think I want to go and uh, I don't want to be in a business. I don't want to but the more I talked to the people at IDEA and the more I kind of got into the, um, the milieu of IDEA, you know, the, the culture, the more I thought, you know, this is actually kind of another administrative position where you can use influence to impact not only your college, but multiple colleges, hundreds of colleges, if you do it the right way. Yeah. So it was kind of a cool, yeah. you know, the more I got into it, the more I thought, all right, you know, this, I, I would consider it. And I was lucky enough to be offered the job and, you know, the rest is history. That was five years ago. So. Wow. Yeah. So the best part of your, now, now five years in, best part of what you do, I'm going to ask you in a minute what, what, you know, presents the bigger challenges okay. for you. But it's a nice but, way to say it. Uh, you know, what, what is it about the work itself? Not just, yes, uh, at, at idea, but also you are leading it. Where, 
where are the connects? What are the things you enjoy the most? Well, the best part is being asked to do podcasts for John Neal. <laughs> that's <laughs> it. You, no. The pinnacle of your career now. So. Yes, right. That's it. Pretty much. I'm going to retire tomorrow. Now, you know, I know I'm supposed to say this, but we just have an awesome team. And we've got about 25 people at IDEA. And everybody is dedicated to the mission, which is... Um, you know, essentially to improve learning in higher education. I don't want to read you the mission, but right. um, through research and analytics and advice. and uh, It's just an amazing group of people to work with. And we're a pretty virtual organization, so our home office is in Manhattan, Kansas. But, um, you know, I don't see a lot. I'm actually based out of Omaha, so I don't, I don't see a lot of people on a day-to-day basis. And when I get to be around everybody, it's just energizing. I mean, it's a really good group of people, and we're all trying to figure out better ways to collect perception data, to use that to get uh, to provide information to people to get let them get better at what they do. It's it's fun, wow. you know. It's really it's one of those things where because it's a mission, you go to bed at night and you think I do good things yes. like you know I'm not trying to make money we have to make money sure. so that's why I'm at this conference like trying to you know get ideas brand out there but um, it really is like kind of a it feels a bit noble yeah. you know like I, I'm really tr- trying to do the right thing here and trying yeah. to do a good thing yeah and making um, a difference in the things that you do yeah, right you know and the, and the fact that the whole team feels that way mm-hmm. and then you know we're all we're human, so we're we're alone and we're tired, and then we get together as a group and we're like, man, this is a great place to work and, you know, a great organization because we're trying to make a difference. So that's by far the best part. Great. I mean, a, you know, unlimited expense account, <laughs> Bentley automobiles are really nice too. <laughs> All right. now we'll, I wish. <laughs> now we'll go to the dark side, which right. is right, the, the, the challenges, what happens there? So the funny thing is this, um, and I'm not sure I should say this publicly, but uh, the funny thing is that 10 years ago, I would say higher education was, was a virtually uncracked quote, business market. Hmm. So it was never looked upon by investors, by venture capitalists, by major corporations as something that you could go into and make money. Um, it was sort of, you know, it was that ivory tower syndrome where it's like, well, it's just kind of an untouchable world. And, I, I, you know, it exploded about 10 years ago. I, I'd say the, the um, business, the orientation towards business of higher education started probably with the University of Phoenix being founded. I think that was in the 70s, I think, something like that. Um, you know, but that was the first, at least in my knowledge, the first pers- uh, first group that said, you know, we can make some good money here. And I, I'm not knocking that they also might have a good education going on too, but it was like about the money. And, it, and they clearly, at one point, they were 450,000 students or something. They clearly... Oh, it is about, you know, Mm. we could make a lot of money here, billions and billions. Since then, and about 10 years ago, it really exploded where to be in this market, um, you really, it really helps to have some venture capital. Um, So we're talking corporations with billions of dollars, not, and and it's becoming more and more difficult to uh, compete in that marketplace. we have 45 years of research, 45 years of nonprofit, you know, kind of 
trying to make a difference. So we have a good reputation and we're doing okay. But man, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to compete these days because it's just all corporatized. It's and it's a resource war. There's no doubt about it. It's a resource it. war. And if you go online, for example, a lot of our stuff is online. You go online and the first thing people ask you is, do you have this feature? Do you have this feature? Yeah. Can you deliver on yeah. Moodle? Can you deliver on, yeah. you know, Canvas? Yeah. Can it's like, wow, we don't have those kind of resources to compete in that market. So, yeah. I tell people... Um, in the same way several years ago, the traditional residential college experience, there was this arms war of, you know, a student wanted oh, right. everything. You know, they yeah. want the rock climbing wall and, Sweets you know, and the, the food options and all of that. And, and it pushed a lot of institutions out of business right. because everybody wanted everything. That's and, right. and I think now the sort of the digital version of that arms war is if you are in, in this space, everybody's wanting everything available on every device, on every platform, right. you right. know, and, and all the bells and whistles. Right. And if you and that's fine if you have an army of, you know, eighty developers. If right. you've got three or four, yeah. It's a lot harder. So finding your you're finding your niche well, and your market right. is a really important piece of that. It is, and you know we we feel like we have a lot to offer above and beyond um, a lot of other organizations, and it's just to it's frustrating to know that we do I think good work, and it's hard to make the impact because we'll lose a lot of times we'll lose to somebody who has a flashier version of something or has a sales team that can pound you every week and a half saying, where are you on this decision? And, yeah. you know, we'll give you 10% discount if you sign today and, you yeah. know, whatever, because we don't do any of that. Yeah. Well, and you don't have to answer this question because <laughs> I'm putting you in a tough spot. But um, I would be surprised if your phone or your board didn't occasionally say, should we entertain opportunities to become for-profit right. because yeah. of the resource? I mean, you know, I again, I, I don't want you to, to you know, betray <laughs> right. anything, but it, it, which I find really interesting that um, service organizations that start at non as nonprofits are seem to be under a lot of pressure by investors of let us buy you, take you right. private or public, whatever right. that is. While at the same time, the for-profit university sector, it, it seems to be a constant um, ring of stories of for-profit universities trying to go not for profit right. or being bought right. like Kaplan right. being bought by Purdue and right. that sort of thing. So it's just an inter how the pendulum swings back and it forth. It is, and it's uh, you know to answer the question, I'm nothing if not blunt because I was. <laughs> I don't know. I was born in Connecticut, and everybody on the East Coast just says whatever they think, and I've never <laughs> lost that ability to do that, for better or worse. But you know, we've we've been approached a few times for it to be bought. Um, it's it's actually I don't know if you know anything about nonprofit law, but it's actually more difficult than you would think. You mm. essentially have to sell the IP, dissolve the organization, and then once you sell the IP, there's no way to really get it back, you know, mm -hmm. so it would be, if we wanted to sell our intellectual property, we would have to just essentially say, oh, okay, ideas no more. Right. You know, you could brand it with something or whatever. Right. But over and above that, 
we kind of like who we are. Sure. You know, we like we like having a mission. We like believing in the mission. We like, um, you know, kind of the purity of that in mm-hmm. some ways. Um, and I will say, we're not, you know, we're concerned with revenue. I mean, we need to survive as well. And we've entered in a, a few partnerships. Probably our biggest partnership is the one with Campus Labs, which is a uh, <clears throat> well, they're they're heavily technologically savvy. And so they help us. They're our partners in our student ratings tool where they actually host it for us and we can keep up with a, with a feature war Good. because they can, they can do that. They sure. have the resources to do that. So, um, you know, we're need or, yeah, necessity always makes you think about things in a different way. That's right. And the only reason we went with Campus Labs is because they have a great attitude uh, similar, they're, they're sort of a for-profit with a non-profit soul, I guess. I mean, mm-hmm. they say the right things when we're talking to them. They're concerned with student outcomes. They're concerned with getting things better. Yes, they're revenue-oriented. Um, but, you know, so we're f- comfortable with a partnership. Like every partnership, it has some peaks and valleys, but sure. generally we're comfortable. Um, so we have sort of morphed into a realizing we can't do it alone yeah and that we have to i've become more of a business person than i ever thought i would be you know <laughs> i hear that a lot it, 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 people today saying i'm doing more law yeah. and business than i ever thought i i would ever do as a leader yeah but you know i i think i think the word of the day is some version of partnering collaboration yeah, oh. combining I mean, not reinventing the wheel, oh, letting that's right. you know, but I it does. Totally agree with that. It it requires a level of trust. That's right. And integration that a lot of people are not adept at or not open to. And it's so. not all about the money. I mean, we have some partnerships going on with people who are nonprofit, who yeah. are you know leaders in the field, who we're trying to figure out how to work together. And I think survival in higher education is all about partnerships now. Yeah. I think if we try to do it alone, we'd be dead. Um, you know, in a couple of years, yeah, probably. Yeah, absolutely. So in the time we have remaining, I know IDEA covers a lot of waterfront from a research standpoint, student success, student performance. But I, I do know that for a lot of folks, they want to talk to you about that bugaboo of the course evaluation. How, how, how do we measure the things that go on? You know, that used to be such a sanctum of it's my class, right. you know, I'll handle it a certain way and nobody can tell me how to teach. And now with the push for assessment and, you know, there's an accountability level. And I'd love for you to talk Without having you give give all the secret sauce away for hey, free on the podcast, open. but you know, talk a little bit about what you found to be the um, really critical dimensions to remember when we're approaching that, both for the students' benefit and the faculty yeah. members' benefit. Yeah. So there's a couple of there's several different things that I would say about that. So. Um, talking about what we call student ratings, but most people call course evaluations, um, it, it's a really hard sell at times because, you know, what you're, first of all, it's it's one of the few things on a campus that touches many, many people. So administrators are interested in it, faculty are interested in it, students are interested in it. It matters for evaluation, it matters for promotion, it matters for tenure. 
it's a you know it's a third rail kind of live wire thing, Absolutely. right? So it's um, it's much more emotionally driven than it it probably anything else in higher education. I you know yeah I mean it's close. If it's not number one, it's close. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things that we work on every day trying to trying to make it palatable for the average person and helpful for the average person in higher education, both administration and faculty. Um, and one thing I've learned over time is that it's really interesting that, you know, if you ask people, if you ask faculty members, do you care about your students and what students think and what they're perceiving in the classroom, 99% of them will say, absolutely, I care about it. Well, do you want us to ask and give you some data back? Hell, heck no, right? <laughs> like, don't be going into my class, as you said. Don't be going and asking the students about stuff. But really what they're saying is, I care a lot about what the students say, but don't use it against me for tenure and promotion or merit pay or whatever you have. And so we're trying to guide colleges, not just administrators, but colleges into how to use these data correctly. You know, and it's really important to talk to them about about that, about that issue of, listen, let us help you not only with the data and collection of the data, but how you use it. So we've got colleges and universities who will say, you know, on a scale of five, if you get a four, you're okay. If you get a 3.9, you're not. And it's, you know, in some ways it's just like, wow, you you can't think of it. It's This is not um, precision science. This right. is perception research. And right. so the difference between a 3.8 and a 4, really, there's no difference. Plus, you're missing um, engagement, uh, innovation, all of those measures. And if, I'm, if my promotion uh, counts on a 4 and I know how to get a four, mm. what are the chances I'm going to innovate in my class and mm. try new things? I'm not going to mess around with it. I'm going to yeah. be like, I'm going to get my promotion and get a four, Yeah. and I'm not going to introduce a flipped classroom or team-based teaching or, you know. Anything that raises the possibility of, of failing. That's right. Because, right? you know, even if I'd learn from that or, you know, that's do right. something different, I want to go with the tried and true. That's right. But what you want is an administrator that will say, um, you know, you tried something and it bombed miserably. But was it IBM, I think? No, 3M used to, maybe it was IBM. No, 3M had a a logo that said, you know, we want you to fail or something Mm -hmm. like that. They celebrated failure. Yeah. Because you learned a hell of a lot from that failure, right? And you, and that's what we want to try to instill in colleges is the sense of tell your story like yes you got bad reviews and this but why like what happened what did you learn from it and how did how did you improve your teaching and learning or teaching and therefore student learning based on it hmm. and so, I, I heard you speak a few months ago and I was just struck by this um, that when you're advising a university and they're putting together some evaluation um form that, um, not that you have complete control, but you recommend that they not have any more than one question about the professor, that the focus of the assessment is 
the course itself and the outcomes right. and their experiences and their own how, how much effort did they put into it right. and the engagement. And I think a lot of times faculty come away thinking that it's a rating sheet on them as a person oh, and as a professor. Because you know? it, it feels that way. And it kind of is if the, it's being used that way. Mm. Like, oh, you got a three. You're lousy. You know, you're not a good <laughs> professor. And it's like, uh, you know, it, when I was a, a CAO, I would much rather have seen somebody hand in threes or three and a halves and say, but I tried, a, mm. you know, five different things last year and I two of them worked and students loved them. And now I'm going to do that into the future. It's like, that's what I want. I don't mm. want somebody saying I got a four and I lectured and, you know, told a couple of jokes and yeah. I got, a, got away with, you know, doing the old school. Yeah. Because, I mean, there's just, active learning is 95% of the time better than mm. lecture-based, you know? So, but nobody moves to it because everybody's like, I'm not going to mess with Scary it because I don't stuff. know what I'm doing. Right? Scary stuff. You yeah. know, I've really thought, as you know, I started life, my professional life in the music room. Right. And we run into this when you're teaching in the music field. And what's funny, not even so much uh, instrumentalists. So, you know, trumpet player walks in and they play and you go, well, you know, you're a little flat or this, or maybe the trumpet isn't for you. And they might be a little hurt, but they move on. But you bring in a voice student and the voice is them, right? right? And then you go, wow, you have a very unpleasant (laughs) voice or you're just (laughs) pitchy all the time. And it's just devastating. And for me, I've thought that one reason that faculty evaluation, course evaluations can get so personal is that we are talking about them. And, Absolutely. You know, and as opposed to, can we talk about the pedagogy of it, the design of it, the planning, right. all of that, they instantly think, well, I'm terrible. Right. And, and, you know, and that really sets up so many barriers to being open to change. No, so. I agree. And, you know, it is a very, very personal thing. And if it's said the right way, I mean, we've all gotten feedback in our lives. You know, we're... There's not a job out there, I think, that people are like, you just do what you want to do and, you know, good, <laughs> good up on and you. go. Yeah, yeah, you know, like all of us are evaluated all the time. And it's it's much different than saying, you know, last year, here's some good things you've done. Here's some things you could work on. Yeah. But we're behind you 100%. Yeah. And that's where we have to get to with these student ratings is, yeah. is you know, there, there's some weaknesses in there. And if it goes on for five years, yes, we're going to have a problem. But it's not because we're going to help you and we're going to support you as you get there. We're not going to ding your pay. We're not going to, it's not going to be a negative as long as you're trying and you're, you know, you're innovating and you're trying to get better. So, and as you mentioned, you know, the other big thing is you have to ask the right questions and get the right data. If you're asking junk questions, you're going to get junk data and it's not going to help anybody. Yeah. Was the professor on time? Well, what does that mean? Does that mean they were two minutes late or never showed up or whatever you know oh you weren't on time yeah but my learning outcomes were really good oh that's we care if you're on time were they nice you know I'm not sure I care that much (laughs) I don't know maybe I should but you don't want them to be mean but you know what I mean ask about teaching ask about learning ask about impact yeah 
how hard it was, how rigorous it was, yeah. goals that they've set, things yeah. like that. Well, it's great advice in so many things that we do, sort of looping back to your career trajectory about um, reconnecting to be successful in life after um, having early bumps along the way. Right. Then, you know, early on um, supervising people, you know, all of that. There's so many things in life that we can get distracted by the peripheral or make them right. seem like they're so important, you know, and understanding what the main thing is or what the really essential part of that, I, I think it helps us from going crazy. It certainly helps the people that we work with from feeling like they have to be extraordinary on a thousand different fronts, right? right? No, I agree so. with you. I mean, you got to find that joy too, you know, you, you really have to, like when I, when I was talking about the mission before, I mean, when you believe in what you're doing on kind of a gut level or a, a values level, it, it makes, I mean, my job's hard, just like everybody else's, you know, and so when I hit those valleys and I'm like, man, why am I doing this, you know, <laughs> that you kind of remember, oh yeah, yeah, there's a belief system behind it that's like, this is, this means something to me, yeah. that's why I'm doing it. It's worth doing. Yeah, it's, it's worth, worth doing. doing. And that's so right. there's a lot of different things I could do and I'm, you know, I'm still relatively young. I guess I could take another trajectory at some point in my career and do something else. But um, this has been a really interesting, I wouldn't trade coming to idea. You know, it's, it's different. Being on the other side of the table is like somebody, one of the first things somebody said to me, my first conference was CIC, CAO conference. Which where I met you, yeah. First one, I was on the on the vendor exhibitor side of the table, and I was talking to um, an attendee there, and they realized, oh, you're a vendor, and they said it with like this <laughs> disdain, you know. And I was like, oh, this is different, uh -huh. you know, over here because uh -huh. they don't want to be sold to, mm -hmm. you know. And That's it. So it, it is different, but it, it's been worth it. And when you do something good, like I also have people come up to me and say, I've known idea for years. I love your student rating system. It's the best one there is out there. You know, I don't have it in my school, but I'm working to get it there. I mean, it's, it's great. It's flattering, you know. It's that's like, great. yeah, that's why we do it, I guess. Yeah. Ken, you've been great to spend the time. Oh, I, sure. I know the background roar is uh, distracting at best, but um, just wonderful to hear you talk about career and work. And oh, sure. thanks so much for being a part. Thanks for having me.